0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another week of A Dark and Devious Tale. Hey guys, again, welcome back uh, to this week's recording and listening of Dark and Devious. Glad you're back.
1: Both of us are very pleased to have you listening.
0: And if this is your first time, welcome.
1: Yes, we seem to be gathering new listeners every week.
0: We are. It's exciting. We're getting little deviants all over the world.
1: Yes, soon, the whole world. Mm, Yes. Deviants.
0: It will be ours.
1: Yeah, we uh, have two new, new countries, right?
0: Yeah, um, Serbia. Yeah. And Lithuania.
1: Right? You know you're making it big if people are listening in Serbia and Lithuania. So <laughs> thank you to whoever you are out there listening. I hope you came back and are listening to this week's episode.
0: Yeah, and I'm curious. I want to know if we can get some feedback from our international listeners, I want to know how you're finding us. Um, Is it the hashtags that I put on each posting on Facebook and Instagram? Is it the fact that, oh, we got a really, a really nice review just this past week. I want to just look it up really fast so I can... Thank that person. It was on Apple podcast.
1: Nice. Well, while you're doing that, um, I think it's really cool to share that now a full 10% of our audience is outside of the United States um, with Australia, Canada, and Germany leading the way. So that I find that super, super cool. And I'm so glad that you all are listening. I would, those are all places I would love to visit, uh, especially uh, since my family history is German on both sides. Yeah, yeah,
0: Um, it's really cool. I'm, I still like, I'm, I'm just kind of in awe that we've, I mean, this is episode number 20
1: that's right oh my gosh that's something huge to celebrate it, like mm-hmm. 20 episodes uh, how many
0: weeks are in a year
1: 52
0: so we're almost halfway to half a year
1: i mean we did start in Feb- february and it's the end of june now so that is that's getting awfully close to half a year mm-hmm. that is so cool i <laughs> Here I was so excited about the audience, I wasn't even thinking about our big milestone. I mean, yeah. how many other podcasts start and don't make it this far, or they don't post as frequently or something like
0: I yeah. think that. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of work. So it, is. it yeah. basically isn't a side job.
1: Right? Uh, I mean, I feel like when I'm doing my research, it's kind of like giving yourself a mini homework assignment every week. Uh, I mean, I think about all the papers I wrote in high school and college. And oftentimes I was cramming them in the last minute. And oftentimes I still do it the same way.
0: I'm exactly the same. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So the person who wrote this nice five-star review, uh, their name on uh, Apple podcast is Reb Wool. So R-E-B-W-O-L-L. So thank you, RebWool, because, you know, the likes and ratings and reviews could also be how people are discovering us, because the more ratings and reviews we get, the more we like pop up on as suggestions for people to Right,
1: that to. we're not just like some ghost podcast or something that like, posts blank episodes or something. I don't know. <laughs> like, we're not bots.
0: We're real. We are people. And we have a blood system. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we don't Put run that on that
1: on a bumper sticker.
0: That can be one of our quotes.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: one of um, our merchandise. We are people with blood.
1: Mm. Um, I'll, I'll see about how we can merchandise that.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of listeners, um, Shout out to Marissa. She is a, she's kind of like a coworker. So we're do, we're teaching summer school right now. And she's from the Minnesota Literacy Council. And she is a VISTA. She comes just to work on like literacy and phonetics with the kids. And she asked what I was going to do over the weekend last Friday. And I was like, oh, Saturday, blah, 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 blah. And then Sunday, just my usual recording of my podcast. She's like, Oh, you host a podcast? I said, Yeah, I do. And she said, What's the what's the topic? What do you cover? I said, Oh, true crime. And her eyes got huge. She like started grinning from ear to ear. And and then she like, Well, what what type of true crime? (laughs) And then I I was like, I was like, more often than not, it's murder. And she Just like started glowing, and she's like, Do you listen to Morbid? I was <laughs> like, Do I listen to Morbid? Oh my gosh, someone is like, I'm probably obsessed with Morbid. I talk about it all the time. And then so she looked us up and she was going to start listening and following. But I just thought that was really cool. I just like seeing how excited she got. I was like, Oh, oh this is I love fun. that.
1: I love when, uh, when you know, sometimes. You know, because when people ask me at work, like, "Oh, what are you doing this weekend?" or whatever, and I'll be like, "Oh, yeah, I'm going to be recording an episode for my podcast." And then when, and then when they ask, what, like, what kind of podcast, and you say true crime, and then they're like, "Oh, I love true crime." And I, you know, I don't expect every single person I've ever talked to about the podcast to listen, but I do like the idea of at least some of the people uh, tuning in you know maybe at least once or twice or you know maybe casually listening or um all just because of that one interaction that we had so i think that's super fun i i really enjoy those moments
0: too Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, yeah um so did you do anything else over this weekend
0: Um, i got together with my in-laws hung out outside it was a beautiful weekend um even
1: with the rain
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, it didn't really rain until like Sunday night, I think. So we got, I don't know. I don't know.
1: I don't remember. <laughs> you, this your weekend. weekend was just a big blur.
0: Yeah. I guess the time wha-
1: that you spent outside must've been nice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's what I remember. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh,
1: my partner and I went um, there are these this chain of thrift stores that is kind of like in the far out north suburbs or, I mean not really even the suburbs it's kind of like outside of the twin cities area metropolitan area um, and they're kind of all like scattered up and along highway 35 they are the best chain of thrift stores that I have ever been to and I almost always find something good at every single one of them and it's cute they've got like little like stamp like stamp cards so like if you spend so much they'll give you like ten dollars off or something mm-hmm. um, but yeah it's super cool I found a whole bunch of cool little odds and ends so that was we did like a little day trip up there so his dog got to have a play date with my mom's dog and we went thrifting so that was a really fun way to spend the weekend
0: yeah I'm never surprised when I hear that you go shopping. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I also found this really cool book that I want to use as a source eventually. Um, it was a book of mysteries of World War II. Ooh. So I'm thinking somewhere along the way, I'm going to use that. Uh, so I'm really excited to look at that.
0: You know, I... um. My sister in law gave me a book this past weekend that I plan on using as well. It's called Stiff.
1: I love that book.
0: And it's just for anyone that doesn't know, it's just about cadavers. So it's just facts about dead bodies. And I like, I want to do an episode where I just kind of skim through some of the most interesting ones that I think are the most interesting and just, you know, talk about dead bodies.
1: I think that would be super good. Uh, That book is phenomenal. It's by Mary Roach, who is, I cannot recommend highly enough. She's written a whole bunch of these really cool, like one word title science books. Um, She also has a really great sense of humor. Uh, So she incorporates that into her writing. Uh, And I have read Stiff, it's been a long time but I still remember little bits and pieces from it. And it would be super fun to go over that again. So, yeah, I cannot recommend Mary Roach's writing enough. She's fantastic. Maybe she'll hear this podcast someday and and hear how much I love her writing.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it went, when and if I do this episode covering topics from Stiff, I can always just add her.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. We could just like, Hey, <laughs> Hey, Mary.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, without further ado, um, because y'all my stomach is growling. I'm hungry. So
1: it's true. I-, I could practically hear it through the microphone.
0: <laughs> I hope not, but, <laughs> but if you can, there's your gift. I want to get into it. So Chris, I am ready for whatever you are serving up today.
1: All right, let's get into it then. So uh, this being the very end of Pride Month, I wanted to wrap up uh, with one more case that kind of fit our umbrella of LGBT cases um, for this month. And this one that I'm talking about today actually has a connection to what we started the month with and that is the fire at the upstairs lounge in new orleans louisiana and i see i see patrick nodding his head i you've probably heard at least something about this before right
0: Mm -hmm. it's i know i know it but the deep like, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I cannot remember the exact details. So, so once you start talking and telling the story, I'm sure it's all just going to come back.
1: Right. And this is a, a larger story that has so many smaller stories rolled into it. Uh, I had some really great sources. The main one that I'm using today is a book called Tinderbox, which is by Robert W. Feisler. Uh, And it's funny, actually, this one I picked up, we had gotten an advanced reader copy of it at the bookstore when I, as soon as I saw this, I like snatched it up, I'm like, I want this book. I mean, so it's been out for a few years, but uh, I'm really glad I got an excuse to kind of dig into it. I really wanna read it cover to cover sometime because there's so much information in here, but I feel like I got a good I got a lot of great information out of it. So without further ado, here we are at the uh, Fire at the Upstairs Lounge. Every social movement in American history has a body count. That's how Robert W. Feisler begins his book, Tinderbox, which is about the fire at the New Orleans gay bar, the Upstairs Lounge. The civil rights movement, Native Americans, organized labor, have all seen bloodshed that brought their various issues to the light in the public eye. The gay liberation movement, of course, is no exception. Earlier this month, we discussed the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016, which was the single worst attack on the gay community in American history. Today, we will discuss another heinous act committed against the gay community 43 years prior, in 1973, where an intentionally But as we will see, the reaction to the upstairs lounge fire and the Pulse nightclub shooting were very different. And it is important to recognize how far we have come and that progress has been paid for in blood. In the wake of Pulse, comparisons to the upstairs lounge fire were drawn almost immediately. Both were attacks on safe spaces where LGBT people could meet and build community and they were the two worst attacks on the community in the US. Surprisingly though, the upstairs lounge fire got more media coverage in the wake of Pulse than it had gotten in the previous four decades. After the shooting, the New Orleans Superdome w- was lit up in rainbow colors in honor of the victims of the uh, and this is in reference to the Pulse nightclub shooting.
0: Okay, that okay, that makes sense.
1: And then several days later, they were lit up, it was lit up again with rainbow colors in memory of the victims of the upstairs lounge fire. But this recognition so easily could have not happened. The upstairs lounge disaster had been willfully pushed into the depths of America's closet, a horror so undesir- undesirable at the time, so the nation would not be forced to deal with the issues of the homosexual. The metaphorical closet became the secret space that all non-heterosexuals maneuvered in American life. And it is not hard to imagine the power of the closet being strong enough as to erase the memory of those lives lost in the fire. But thankfully, strong voices have kept the memory of those victims alive, and their harrowing story will live on the struggle for recognition and remembrance aligns their stories with those of the greater fight for civil rights as minorities in America battled for equality. In America, prejudice against homosexuality has been ingrained since the very earliest days. Thomas Jefferson wrote a 1777 revision to a Virginia law that said sodomy should be punished If a man by castration, if a woman by cutting through the cartilage of her nose, a (gasps) hole. What? Is that not like so
0: messed up? Oh, like I'm thinking like, I mean, yeah, castration for a man like that would suck. But I'm thinking like when when I have like a itch in my nose and you scratch it with your fingernail it hurts so bad you think that's worse than castration (laughs) i don't know what it feels like to be castrated but i know what it feels like to scratch the inside of my nose and i can't (laughs) imagine someone putting a hole through that and then you have a deviated septum and that's just all sorts of bad stuff
1: yeah i'm not it didn't really seem to uh to specify how it would be Um. like if it would be the outside or i don't know it didn't seem to specify where that hole would be put in the nose but it sounds really really damn unpleasant
0: and that's such an odd punishment
1: It, it is i guess it's sort of like what a scarlet letter kind of situation but a physical thing on your body um i guess though this was considered lenient because the previous punishment was death sure but still Perhaps Mr. Jefferson was not consulted on crafting the Eighth Amendment, which protects us from cruel and unusual punishment, because both of those punishments are very cruel and unusual. Also, General George Washington court martialed a Continental Army lieutenant for attempting to commit sodomy with another soldier, which led to his dismissal at Valley Forge. I mean, like, Come on, George, it gets lonely on the battlefield. (laughs) In the 20th century, with the onset of the AIDS crisis, high-profile gay figures found it incredibly difficult to be public about their sexuality. The AIDS-related deaths of actor Rock Hudson and Queen lead, lead singer Freddie Mercury showed just how powerful the fear of being identified as homosexual was. To be out was not only to be different from heterosexual society, but it was also to be associated with the plague that was the AIDS crisis. It has taken decades to reach the mainstream acceptance that the queer community has today. Although uh, be reminded that it is by no means total acceptance. According to a Gallup poll from 2021, 70% Seventy percent of Americans support same-sex marriage, which is up ten points from twenty fifteen.
0: Wow, that's a big jump in just six years.
1: I know it's kind of surprising. Uh, also, was wasn't it twenty fifteen when the like the court ruling was made that
0: when it came nationwide, it was no yeah, longer was state nationwide. by state.
1: Um, and I think I, it's it's crazy, but like things like that, just making it legal just kinda takes the pressure off, I feel like. And and once people see like, hey, the sky isn't gonna fall just because two men or two women got married, see, it's gonna be okay. And yep. I, I think that does make a, a big impact on people's opinions.
0: Yep, yep.
1: Uh, and in a 2019 Pew Research poll uh, that asked if homosexuality should be accepted by society, of Americans said that it should, which I think is weird. Like what's with that 2% that still doesn't support gay marriage, but then thinks that they should be accepted by society. I don't know, maybe there's, I mean, they were done in two different years. So maybe there were some fluctuating opinions. Um, And although 72% is really good uh, we're still behind other countries. Uh, for instance, Canada is at 85%. Even Argentina is at 76%. Australia is at 81%. France and Germany, 86%. Spain, 89 And if you really wanna go to an accepting place for the LGBT community, the Netherlands has a 92% acceptance rate and Sweden, is at the top of the list with 94%. Hmm. Uh, On the other end of the spectrum though, some of the low points, Russia and Ukraine, only 14% say that homosexuality should be accepted by society. Um, Indonesia and Tunisia, only 9% and Nigeria at 7%. So, and this was just of the countries that they were able to collect data for. Um, so it wasn't the entire world. I could probably imagine a couple places that would maybe be even lower than 7%.
0: I know uh, it's still highly... Stig- I don't want to talk about all African nations. So dis- disclaimer, I'm not saying Africa as a continent is homophobic. Right. But there I are do. some
1: places though.
0: Yes, there are.
1: Yeah. And uh, I would think some places in that are other former Soviet republics or some places in the Middle East, I could totally imagine there being some even lower rates of acceptance. But in the 1970s, no one seemed to be even asking the question whether homosexuality should be accepted. In 1973, the age of the AIDS epidemic had not yet surfaced and America was going through a period where the mainstream had grown disillusioned and disgruntled with the free love hippie movement. After all, they had just recently reelected the button down Richard Nixon in 1972. uh, And his distaste for hippies was very well known. This really put the LGBT movement at odds with the greater narrative of American politics. This is the environment we find ourselves in when it comes to the upstairs lounge fire. The upstairs lounge was located on the fringe of New Orleans French Quarter in a neighborhood called Vieux Carré, which translates to Old Square.
0: I was gonna ask if it was the car. (laughs) (laughs) No,
1: car is voiture. (laughs) Which is nothing like English, Uh, so it's... No cognate for that one.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: So it's about six blocks down the street from Jackson Square and only about three blocks from the Mississippi River. The bar was situated on the second floor of a three-story building, as many bars are in New Orleans. Um, A lot of the older neighborhoods, very small, close together, and uh, if you've got... You know, a, a lot of the buildings aren't super tall, but they, they make use of every floor there. In addition to being a hangout for a mostly blue collar gay crowd, it was also closely associated with the Metropolitan Community Church, which to avoid confusion later on, I will be abbreviated several times as MCC. So okay. remember that Metropolitan Community Church.
0: Not so, the media censorship control thing? No, that's the FCC. Sorry.
1: (laughs) Not to be confused. Um, So the uh, MCC is a pro-LGBT Protestant denomination, and the local congregation of which uh, frequently met in the bar's theater. So I guess it kind of had like a dance floor type area that was um, oftentimes used for services. A horrible way of including homophobia into the institute like the institutions of governance so that's an example of institutionalized homophobia and it's it's always been there you know in the same way that we talk about institutionalized racism about how things are worked into laws to basically prevent people of color from either interacting with with white people or um, from advancing themselves, Um, like these have always been here.
0: Yeah, yep, that's very true.
1: On June 24th, 1973, while LGBT community members across the country were celebrating and remembering the fourth anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising in New York City, the patrons of the upstairs lounge were enjoying a beer bust drink special. The drink special lasted from 5 to 7 p.m. and attracted approximately 110 patrons. So a pretty busy night for a bar that's like a second floor bar. So I imagine it wasn't a massive space.
0: And at that time, it would have had like a limited audience.
1: Yeah, and just overall limited capacity. After the beer bust was over... 60 to 90 people remained. Many of those that lingered were members of the MCC, including the parish's leader, Reverend Bill Larson. Um, Also, so that beer bust, it's so crazy to think about uh, compared to to today. The drink special was like all you can drink beer for a dollar.
0: What a time to be alive. Like...
1: (laughs) which is just crazy Um, if
0: we could put those types of prices into the modern world where these we'd never be sober (laughs) yeah like but what i'm saying like if we could put those now where a gay bar could be more safely operated it would be like chef's kiss
1: (laughs) (laughs) right i mean we do have the closest thing to that, though, in Minneapolis. I mean, going to the 19 bar where you can actually get a drink for less than $5. <laughs> Pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. That's also where I spent a good chunk of my weekend this last weekend. Like, Oh, fun. Just going out with friends. You know, 20 bucks could is more than enough for me in a night. Uh, all right. So back to it. So there had been a, a service earlier that evening, so it, it was a Sunday, and a group of parishioners remained to discuss an upcoming church fundraiser for the local Crippled Children's Hospital. The crowd listened to the piano stylings of George Stephen Budd Matty as the conversations continued. Then at 7.56 PM, there was a buzz at the door downstairs. Since the bar was on the second floor, oftentimes taxi drivers would ring the buzzer to let the patron who had called them that they had arrived. And this is what bartender, Buddy Rasmussen assumed when he asked one of the regulars, Luther Boggs, to check the door and see who it was. To his horror, When he opened the door, the staircase was engulfed in flames, fueled by lighter fluid. Rasmussen, who was an Air Force veteran, managed to lead about 20 of the bar patrons out the back door and onto the roof where they could escape via the neighboring building's rooftop. Mm. Others went to escape through the bar's floor to ceiling windows, but there were safety bars spaced 14 inches apart to prevent hapless dancers from smashing into the window and falling to the street below.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Some were able to squeeze through the bars though, although not all lived to tell the tale. Luther Boggs, the regular who had answered the door came crashing through the window, still on fire after first helping a female friend escape. Boggs was extinguished by a bartender from a neighboring establishment, but he suffered third degree burns over half of his body. He eventually died from his injuries 16 days later on July 10th. One of the most horrific images from the fire was the fate of Reverend Bill Larson. Larson had tried to escape the blaze through a window. He removed an air conditioning unit from the bottom of one of those big floor-to-ceiling windows as he attempted to escape through the window pane crashed down on him and pinned him in place he remained there half inside half outside and his charred body remained there with no regard to the fallen preacher's dignity in fact his body was left for hours long enough to be photographed by reporters so this is a super famous image from this incident and it's so like raw because this is someone who like, they were so close to escaping and bystanders who were on the ground, who couldn't, they, they couldn't do anything about it.
0: Um, yeah. Cause he's on the second floor.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like people on the ground could reach him and no one was going to like go up the on fire staircase.
0: That would be oh my gosh. The
1: most that bystanders could really do was try to catch people as they like jumped out the window. Yeah. Granted, like you can survive a fall from the second floor, especially if people are there to Mm -hmm. catch you. But when you're trapped in the blaze, like or you if you couldn't fit through the window, like there's no hope for you. And this this was so horrific because. He was literally screaming for his life. And all people could do was just watch because he was trapped and he was out of reach of, of help. Um,
0: that is that is awful. Like if, I mean, dying in a fire is bad enough, but to Probably be, one of the most
1: horrific ways to go.
0: Right, but knowing the fact that he was halfway out means he probably did not- pass out due to like smoke inhalation like many people do he i don't yeah i don't even want to think about what he must have gone through
1: right uh i mean being essentially cooked alive yeah is, is what they what the the people inside <sighs> experienced. the fire moved so quickly that um, you know traditionally most people who die in fires they like they die of like smoke inhalation or or something like that, and so at least if they if their body catches on fire, they're already dead. Um, but this was such a fast-moving fire, it a lot of the people inside were not that fortunate. Another heartbreaking tale was that of Assistant Pastor George Mitch Mitchell. Mitchell had been there that evening with his partner Louis Horace Broussard that evening Mitchell's children from a previous marriage had been visiting from out of town and they were at the movies and uh so Mitchell's relationship with his partner uh they again this was a time where there was not legal recognition for uh, same-sex partners but they were they had to have like they were like a committed couple. Like they had had like a a um a marriage ceremony,
0: like a a union. Like,
1: I mean, I I would call it a wedding, uh, without the legal sure protections sure. of a wedding. I sure. guess
0: yes, that's right. Um,
1: so this so they were, uh, very very devoted to each other. Uh, so Mitchell had actually managed to escape, and when he realized that. Broussard his partner was not out like he had not made it out of the of the bar he actually went back for him and he braved the flames to find his partner tragically the two of them were found in a hallway Mm -hmm. still embracing in their last moment of life and to add on to the sadness of their particular story is that Mitchell's children who were at the movies they waited there they waited through seven showings of the same film until somebody who was uh like a neighbor uh came and picked them up and like brought them to the airport later and sent them home and they didn't even like when they were going home they didn't even know what had happened to their father. And it wasn't until later that they, that they knew that their father had died, which is just, it's just crazy to me to think, be like, hey, they, they said that they would be back to pick us up after the movie was done. And then you wait and you wait and you wait. I can't imagine what would be going through your mind as a child.
0: and then to just you know be picked up by away. essentially a stranger and sent back to your other home without yes, any explanation. I, I mean,
1: I hope that they at least knew this neighbor uh, or that maybe they had at least been introduced to this neighbor because it's like who who else are gonna call because like the you know like the uh, officials from the church, they were there in the fire too know the pastor was and a lot of members of the congregation and like and like this was the social group that they knew like how how do you even know who to get a hold of when there, no one is there is left the bar luckily was not far from the fire station it was just two blocks in fact but the chaos of pedestrians and traffic hindered their response. The blaze still only raged for 16 minutes, but it was enough to cause unbelievable carnage. Coroner Carl, Carl Rabin had a difficult time identifying some of the bodies because they were so badly burned. Items like jewelry and hotel room keys were sometimes the only clues to the identities of the fallen. The coroner described the scene as just a mass of death. They came from all different backgrounds and were probably all there for different reasons, but they all met the same sad fate together, many within the first 360 seconds of the fire's duration. When a safety investigation was completed after the fire, numerous failings were detected. A fire door that was meant to block the flames crumpled as if totally defective. So that's kind of one of those ones where like, when it, when like the heat got to be a certain point, it was supposed to just like spring shut. Okay. And it, it totally failed. And if it had worked, it would have prevented the, the flames from like, From getting uh, up the stairwell into the main part of the bar. Also, emergency exit lights did not function. So, if you're looking for that, you know, that that lit up exit sign that we are so used to today, theirs was not functioning. And uh, there was extremely flammable rayon wallpaper covering the walls as well as other things like kind of like fabric curtains and stuff that were all very, very flammable. Uh, And then of course there was the bars on the windows, which were not up to regulation that it obviously trapped people inside. In fact, there were some people, uh, there was at least one instance that I read about in the book where one of the patrons was literally just too tall. Like he was too big of a guy that, and there was no way that he could slip through the bars even with the window broken. Um, so all of these factors contributed to the high death rate. And interestingly enough, the bar had actually not been inspected since 1971. So that's two years without an inspection.
0: It so makes the New Orleans fire was like neglected of inspection due to, you know, the stigma at the time.
1: Right, I know that's definitely something that I thought of. Uh, what I thought was interesting here was that the New Orleans fire department blamed staffing shortages for why the bar had not been inspected in two years, uh, and and also I think it what is. Like, two years doesn't seem like that long, but the, the recommendation is that they should have been getting inspections every six months. So they were at least, like, like, were like four inspections behind. Uh, and on top of that, too, that there was only one inspector for the entire French Quarter. So you're talking hundreds and hundreds of buildings. And also... All of them are probably on the older side. I mean, this particular building was was built um, around the 1840s, I believe is what I read. Um, so that's probably the, the landscape of most of the other buildings in the area. You know, you're, you're talking 18th century buildings with 20th century issues like Electricity and lighting and stuff like that. Uh, so the fact that there was only one inspector for this huge area, uh, that was like fire officials seemed to just accept that the fire was not the responsibility or liability of the city or the state. For some, you know, that they they did not see that as their fault.
0: Which I I call BS on that.
1: uh, Yeah, I definitely agree. Because it's literally your job to inspect these places. And if they can't get regular inspections based on their own guidelines of every six months, there's something wrong. Like, I don't know. I don't care. You just have to hire more people, I guess. You just got to do it. In all, 32 people died. 28 died at the scene and one on the way to the hospital and three more died later from their injuries. 15 people were wounded but survived. A fair number of victims had actually been military veterans and there is a strange irony that these men had risked their lives to serve their country and hid their true selves in order to serve only to have their lives ended in a senseless fire started on purpose.
0: And by their own people they were defending.
1: The investigation determined that the fire was indeed an arson, but failed to produce any convictions. The generally accepted storyline though is that a disgruntled patron, Roger Dale Nunes, had started the fire. Earlier that evening, Nunez had been thrown out of the bar for fighting with a fellow patron. He was punched in the jaw and was quoted threatening to burn you all out. It was confirmed by a witness that Nunez had been in and out of the bar shortly before the fire as well. But as for, the corrobor- as for corroborating an alibi, the witness was dismissed as unreliable when they showed to be stressed during questioning. Furthermore, Nunez happened to suffer from conversion hysteria, also known as conversion disorder, which is a neurological symptom disorder that can manifest itself as numbness, blindness, paralysis, or fits caused by stressful situations. He had even been placed in a psychiatric hospital several years before the fire Like, get this, he escaped from the psychiatric hospital. And I guess authorities just never got around to catching him again. Like, even though he had run-ins with the police.
0: So they just didn't try or he was that smart? Like, which one is it?
1: I know. Well, and I would think that if he had run-ins with the police in the French Quarter somewhere, that, I mean, I think... One of the problems is that this is uh, uh, a time when information sharing was really difficult. That's you know, true. You, you, it was all snail
0: mail. You...
1: <laughs> or, I mean, you'd have to physically call someone. Uh, right. Or, or, like, if you have a police record, it's on a piece of paper. And, you know, if you were in another city, another, another state or something like that, it's not like there's a centralized database at this time of all of the all of the police histories of people who have been like arrested and stuff uh, which is you know now you get pulled over they can run your license in like 30 seconds and and find out if there's a warrant out for your arrest or something like that they know so, every
0: parking ticket you've ever gotten mm-hmm.
1: that, that's that's true too um, so I guess we, we look at it from a 21st century point of view and we're like, how did they never find him? Like, how did they never arrest him? But then like looking at it from a 1970s standpoint, I, I'm like, well, they probably had bigger problems and they probably like, this probably wasn't priority number one. And there was not the kind of information sharing. So,
0: right. One yeah. of those
1: things we take for granted, I think. So Nunez had a lot going on in his personal life. So he had his mental health, um, so that, like, that was causing him problems. Um, he was also a Vietnam veteran, which looking back on that now, we see a lot of instances of, of people coming back from Vietnam with post-traumatic stress disorder and him already having this other mental health disorder was probably exacerbated by his service. And then there was also his sexuality. Um, he it, it seemed that he kind of struggled with it because he did marry a woman. And surprisingly, he married a woman sometime after the fire. So probably in 1974 uh, or later in 1973. Okay. Um, but he admitted to his wife, that he was gay right after they got married which makes you wonder like did she know or or was she just blindsided by this it's it seems like a weird situation or did
0: they like did they have children together did she stay with him for the kids they
1: never consummated their relationship oh yeah and they slept in separate beds
0: maybe she needed financial support and she was like hey whatever it takes. I don't takes. know. I
1: guess it didn't talk about him. At, I, I guess I didn't hear what his financial kind of situation was. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe he just really charmed her.
0: And you know what? There's all types of relationships. Yeah. You know, there's no reason to say that he or she were in the wrong for being in a in a committed relationship, knowing full well that there was no sexual chemistry. Mm-hmm. There could have been and like that a was deep... just an
1: accepted way of, like, an acceptable relationship at the time because, you know, people, you know, if you were a, a bachelor, you know, people were, if, if you were a bachelor of a certain age, I'm sure people began to wonder about you, like, oh, why don't they have a wife? And Mm -hmm. that was just like the way that people saw things back then, I feel like.
0: Right, anyways, we digress.
1: We digress.
0: (laughs) Back to the story.
1: Either way, it seems that he really struggled with with his own internalized homophobia. Uh, And it is also said that uh, he confessed multiple times to the fire. So there's a story about some plainclothes policemen coming to the apartment where he was living. And I guess uh, his roommate had come to the door and the police officers had asked him some questions about the fire and he totally denied it at the time. Um, And apparently he also had night terrors about a fire saying that, and he would say in his sleep that he didn't do it, um, that, like not to blame him for it, but then he w- then he later went on to confess to people that he had committed the fire. So he kept on like kind of going back and forth because he also recanted. It just seems very very strange. the the fact that he had an axe to grind with with the bar for being thrown out, uh, the fact that. He was seen in the area at the time. And, and, and the whole, like, I'll have to burn you out, that whole, that quote that someone reported hearing him say, that all, it's just too, it lines up too perfectly, I feel like. Sometimes the most obvious person is your guy. Um, so yeah, he claimed to have gone to a nearby Walgreens and purchased some Ronsonol lighter fluid And then returned to douse the steps leading up to the bar in lighter fluid and set them aflame. So the entryway was decorated with fabric and wood paneling so with the addition of an accelerant and a light it was an absolute tinderbox. Sadly there will never be any absolute closure on this though because in November of 1974 Nunes took his own life with no other leads and their main suspect deceased, the case sat gathering dust for the rest of the decade. In 1980, the state fire marshal's office simply closed the case. So it kind of, it's it's really, really sad that there will never be that definitive answer because Nunez chose to take his life and you wonder is that the act of a man with a guilty consci- conscience? Or is that the act of a man who can't come to terms with his own sexuality? Or is that the act of a man suffering from mental illness who can't see any other way out?
0: Is it um, all three combined? Right. You know, maybe he couldn't deal with his sexuality which developed into a mental illness, became depressed. And then also because of his internal turmoil, took it out on the community that he was refusing to accept as his own.
1: It's, any, anything is possible,
0: I guess. Uh... To me, it sounds like Nunez probably set the fire. That's just my own personal opinion just because he had beef with them already and he made that statement and he confessed but recanted multiple times I know there are false confessions but it just seems like given the circumstances his confession was probably genuine and then he tried to backpedal to get himself out of it that's just my own personal opinion yeah
1: and I I I just wonder what could have been going through his mind and why he would have like, why would you confess? Like, why would you open yourself up to, to that? If you weren't guilty of that? I don't know. It's, it's hard to say the, like their policy or the, the, the TV stations didn't want to, basically they didn't want, Anyone to feel like that that being gay was okay.
0: Yeah, it's like don't show these real victims that are human beings,
1: right? Uh, and then there's also on the other side too that there was a real fear, no doubt, that uh, for survivors to be outed.
0: Oh, so yeah. if
1: they, you know, if they were not out in in their professional lives or their personal lives in uh, at large. Uh, that they might be harassed for being homosexual or being associated with homosexuals.
0: Yeah, I guess it, it kind of is like a way of silencing them, but also punishing them. Or right, not, which is like they've already silence- gone through a I'm traumatic sorry. situation. Cut that, please. Um, redo. Sure. It's a way Second- of silencing them and protecting them. You know, because yeah. like you mentioned, they don't want to be, if they're not out, it could put their their personal safety at risk.
1: Exactly. Um, so it's it's no wonder, though, that in a, a Time magazine poll from just several years earlier, um, so it was 1969, 63 percent of Americans surveyed considered homosexuals to be harmful to american life 63 percent. that just is astounding to me
0: it's astounding to me as well but it makes me so happy to know that we've come so far
1: right we've more than flipped that number yes yes to many the victims of the fire got what they deserved Even fellow civil rights groups, such as the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or Jesse Jackson's People United to Serve Humanity, also known as PUSH, Mm. did not even comment on the tragedy. Though in those days, the LGBT community was used to being snubbed even by fellow marginalized groups. Despite the high death toll, it seemed like many were eager to forget about the fire that had killed so many. Also, at the time, to- like this was this was like New Orleans's uh, most deadly fire, I believe.
0: I remember doing research for Pulse. Um, they referenced this fire, uh-huh. and it was uh, before Pulse the most deadly fire um, <clears throat> against the LGBTQ plus community but they did mention that it was one of the biggest catastrophes before Katrina that hit New Orleans.
1: Okay, that makes makes sense. There was also a major lack of outrage from city officials. For previous disasters like this, days of mourning were declared in the city and press conferences were held. But for the gay bar patrons, the mayor, Moon Landreau, who was on vacation in Europe at the time couldn't even be troubled with a statement, despite issuing a statement months earlier about a fire that had killed six in downtown New Orleans at a building called the Rault Center. So it seems like the very reason, like the, the reason that this particular disaster was being brushed off by officials was because of who the victims were and that this was a gay establishment and therefore undesirable and therefore not worthy of even being mentioned. I mean, this is like the, the most deadly fire in your city. And here, yeah, you could be bothered to comment on a fire that killed six people just a few months earlier, But when 32 people die, you have nothing to say. Right. Like that there's no other way to describe it other than homophobic.
0: And maybe like maybe he wasn't personally homophobic, but he just cared about what his image was in the city
1: exactly that is very true i mean this would have been a prime time to issue those you know thoughts and prayers you know but none of them were offered and this is something that we're used to hearing i mean because uh when we talked about pulse uh even like even officials in like russia were offering their condolences you know which we mentioned earlier
0: not the most it's like 14% approved. Yeah,
1: not the most welcoming place for, for that community. So to have the, the mayor of the city not even have anything on their radar is just appalling by today's standards. In the book, Tinderbox, they, they do talk a lot about Moon Landreau, uh, who was actually a fairly liberal politician for the time. Uh, He was actually considered uh, to be a potential running mate for George McGovern in the 1972 presidential campaign. Uh, And he had actually done a lot of, he had kind of thrown his support against some positive causes like desegregation um, and equality for people of color, uh, which is, is great. It's like you can't leave like you can't leave another group behind. Um, and I, I think a lot of his reaction was based on what he felt he had to do as a politician, right? And because of if he had come out gung ho, in support of the gay community, it would have damaged his, his mainstream reputation, which is so, it's so tragic to think that it's like, oh, it just, at that time, that's not the way the political leanings were going, and it may have been political suicide at that point. But this is why it's so important to acknowledge how much things have changed. Including a sniper attack at a Howard Johnson's that had occurred in January of that year. So uh, also this would be a super interesting little story. To story tell. to cover sometime. This guy who was, I believe he was a Vietnam vet. He like got on the roof of this Howard Johnson's, which I believe Howard Johnson's was like a I think it's a drugstore. No, I think it was a restaurant chain.
0: Oh, I don't was know. it a
1: restaurant? Oh my gosh. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna no, be so you tell
0: your story, I'll look it up.
1: Oh, you're gonna look it up? Okay. Yeah,
0: you tell your story. I,
1: I'm like, it's either a hotel chain or a restaurant chain. And I'm gonna be really embarrassed if I if I got it wrong, but so anyway, he was he was um, shooting people from the rooftop of this building.
0: It's a hotel.
1: Okay, there we go. Got it corrected. And this happened actually really close to the city hall. Um, and yeah, and and the, uh, the mayor was actually very involved in that. And of course, declared, uh, you know, like days of mourning and all of the normal things that you would associate with an attack like that. But here, when it comes to an arson that kills 32 of your citizens, nothing. Politicians weren't the only ones to disrespect the victims of the disaster. When bartender, Buddy Rasmussen and bar owner, Phil Esteve, were finally allowed back in the bar after the fire, they found that the cash register, the jukebox and the cigarette machine had all been emptied of cash meaning that either police, firefighters, or reporters stole the money since no one else had been allowed inside. Isn't that so messed up?
0: That's, I mean, I was thinking like, oh, it's, uh, you know, there's there's holes in the wall because there's a fire. Maybe someone went in and took the money. But if there was like surveillance and no one was allowed in. Right, and this
1: is pretty shortly after um like
0: that's unacceptable
1: yeah they so uh the bar owner actually opted not to report it though because he knew that it would be the word of a homosexual against the word of authorities (sighs) and the authorities they had the upper hand so he just had to cut his losses with his grief it's so crazy to think that, not that the money was important, but it just is adding insult to injury to be like, oh yeah, by the way, we we basically shook down your burned out bar for every last dime we could find.
0: Exactly, it's like you just suffered a huge travesty and we're gonna add the icing on the cake.
1: Yeah. And the the fact that even the police could not necessarily be trusted in this investigation. And that they knew that because this was a vulnerable population, that they had no other recourse. Uh, It's just so despicable, so despicable. In this period of news coverage, there was a lot of fear spread. An anonymous woman contacted local ABC affiliate WVUE and told them that a vigilante group called Black Mama White Mama, which is named after a black exploitation film starring Pam Greer that had been released earlier that year, was declaring war on homosexuals and took credit for the fire the caller also claimed that there would be more attacks. Thankfully, the call was a hoax, but this the, the reporting on this call incited both anger and panic. WVUE did not issue an apology for reporting the false news. And in fact, some members of the public were glad that someone had tried to scare gay activists into silence. The reactions from some of the religious communities were just as bad, if not worse. Many churches refused to hold funerals for the dead, an absolutely despicable and disgraceful thing to do, if you ask me.
0: Yeah, because God supposedly created every person unique to the be themselves. And right. God it's like loves it shouldn't matter. everyone. Like, so a church should love everyone too because they pray to a God that loves everyone.
1: Exactly. I, I couldn't agree more. Also, we're all equal in death. Like every single person who is born will die someday. Yep. That's, everybody deserves dignity in death.
0: I yes, think. and respect.
1: The Catholic Arch- Archbishop for the Diocese of New Orleans Philip Hannon, who was known as like the, the Pope of New Orleans, did not offer prayers for the victims. Though there was a pithy mention of the event uh, in a church newsletter, like a month later. And it was sort of like, a it was a very much an all lives matter kind of response to the fire. And it was literally four lines. Nuts. And it was just like, oh like we should pray for these people as you know as we pray for all people or whatever it was really half-hearted and it was and like i said it was like published in a newsletter a month after it happened like really you were too busy you couldn't have, you couldn't have even if you would just said it sooner when it actually would have meant something and it should also be noted that no Catholic churches would be involved in funerals or prayer vigils that would follow. So, uh, uh, uh there was an account in the, bo- in the book here that one of the victims wanted or was going to be buried in the, um, would, in the Catholic church cemetery where their family plot was. Yeah. But, they wouldn't, they wouldn't allow them to be buried there because of them being a homosexual.
0: The church wouldn't allow them?
1: Yeah, the church wouldn't allow it. So they had to be buried in like <sighs> some city plot. I, I just don't get, like the whole point of Christianity, I feel like is that yes, we are imperfect people. And that the whole reason that you have the Jesus story is that, like, Jesus died for your sins. Like, now we're getting on, like, a whole Bible school lesson. Um, It just seems that, like, no matter how you conduct yourself in life, that that does not mean that you are not deserving of, like, a cemetery plot or something yeah
0: it's like no matter what you do in a religious mindset whatever your religion is Mm -hmm. no matter what you do you are forgiven right and you deserve respect and the same treatment as someone who did not sin and for a church to come in and say just because you love someone of the same gender makes you um, like an outcast it's just it, it's against everything that they believe in
1: I know I agree it, it's like you know who else hung out with a bunch of outcasts Jesus
0: Jesus he <laughs> was friends with the lepers and the gays and
1: um, everyone
0: in between the sex
1: workers yeah 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 um so, some churches, though, did choose to hold vigils, um, like St. George's Episcopal Ch- Church did on June 25th. Uh, they had like a, a, like a medium size. I think it was 80 people showed up for that prayer vi- vigil. Um, but astoundingly, after that, they received complaints and even hate mail for, just for holding a prayer service for people who died in a fire. Like what the hell people, don't you all have better things to do than to be upset about a prayer vigil? Like when you boil it down, like you are upset at a prayer vigil. That is the, the highest kind of like idiocy. Uh, then there was the Episcopal Bishop for New Orleans. Iveson B. Noland which I found out is actually an anagram for a blonde venison. Oh. Uh, I'd also, you could also rearrange the letters and it's non-viable nods. I, I, I was like, that name just sounds like a bad Scrabble hand. <laughs> <laughs> um So yeah, Iveson B. Noland rebuked Reverend Richardson, uh, who was the one who had given the prayer, like the small prayer vigil. Uh, Like honestly, who goes out of their way to rebuke someone for having a prayer service? Like, isn't that literally 100% of what you do? Uh, Thankfully though, two... Other vigils on July 1st, one at a Unitarian church and the other at a United Methodist church went off without a hitch. And uh, even the the founder of the MCC, Troy Perry, um, came all the way from Los Angeles to attend. In the aftermath, there was great confusion though over some of the victims. Frantic family members of estranged gay sons and brothers clogged the phone lines, wondering if someone they knew had perished in the blaze. Many of them not even giving their own names. It was not uncommon for queer family members who were alienated from said family to move to the cities and simply disappear into the melting pot of the bustling urban world. Sadly though, three victims of the fire went unidentified. It is heartbreaking to think that perhaps no one was looking for these young men or the shame of their lifestyle was too great for the family to come forward. Even even Reverend Larson's own mother refused to claim her son's body when she found out his homosexual connection. One of these unidentified victims was only just identified in 2018 as Larry Norman Frost, who was 32 years old at the time of his death. Sadly, these unidentified men were buried without grave markers, one even with the pants and undershirt still grafted to his skin. Shortly after the last victims though were laid to rest, the fire became an unheard of topic of conversation even the survivors for years didn't talk about what they had experienced, which honestly is not uncommon for, uh, for the people who have experienced a traumatic event.
0: Right, I mean, it, like suppression is a coping mechanism.
1: In the period shortly after the fire, a national day of mourning was observed by MCC chapters across the country and even in Great Britain. Gay bars, nightclubs, and bathhouses across the nation also observed the morning in a rare moment of national gay unity. Even some straight bars in San Francisco, um, like in solidarity in solidarity with um, their neighbors, basically observed this this morning. Hmm. Uh, and this level of unity was probably not matched until really the AIDS crisis when the gay community was forced to come together. Um, And it's also should be noted too that this kind of national uh, recognition was not covered in any of the mainstream media. Basically the only ones to cover it were local gay publications. So uh, in addition to this um, kind of moment of unity, there was a little bit of good that came in the wake um, in the form of some changes in the neighborhood. So Assistant State Fire Marshal Timothy Driscoll led a campaign to clean up what he called fire traps. Nearly 100 buildings in the French Quarter were visited and thousands of violations were cited. Many gay bars in the area made changes to windows and added exits to avoid another tragedy like the upstairs lounge. So it's like, come on, this is what, like, one of the things that you should have focused on from the beginning, people. Like, even if you weren't going to look at it as a tragedy for the LGBT community, at the very least, you should be like, this is a safety thing. Like, we should be working to make sure something like this never happens again. And thankfully, Changes did get made. Uh, so yeah, thousands of violations were cited in this kind of um, sweeping inspection of of the city.
0: All like in the same like uh, old quarter, New, New Orleans. Yeah, yeah, right? so
1: we're talking about like the French quarter in okay. general. Uh, and thankfully, as far as I know, there has never been a tragedy quite like this to happen again in New Orleans. So I'm hoping that means that these um, inspections save lives. Uh, Also spurred on by the success of the main prayer vigils, organizers sought to mobilize gay groups in other cities to form support groups. These groups raised money for fire victims and helped spur on blood donations across the country. There was even a fund set up called the National New Orleans Memorial Fund that received donations from all over America. By 1974, money was going out to victims and families from the fund. There was also a civil lawsuit filed against the city for $28 million. uh, And that was uh, on the basis of the city's negligence in inspecting the bar for nearly two years but unfortunately a judge ruled in the city's favor, giving fire inspectors carte blanche to, do, to basically not do their jobs. Other cases filed against the bar owner and the building owner were settled for a mere $80,000. And uh, that $80,000 was divided among the plaintiffs. So mm. that really was not enough to make a big impact
0: right they got very little from what they were served like
1: right and i it didn't say how many plaintiffs there were so if there were a lot of plaintiffs you know you take out legal fees and then you mm-hmm. and then whatever's left is what gets split up among you know a large group of people you know that's really not much money at all but Gay life continued on in New Orleans. By the end of the 70s, there were over over 40 gay and lesbian hangouts in the city and the eagerness to move on brushed memories of the upstairs lounge fire uh, under the rug. But no, the fallen would not go unremembered forever. The New Orleans MCC organized a tribute on the 25th anniversary of the fire in 1998, with a crowd that was proud to show their faces and show their support. Since then, the tragic fire has been remembered in written accounts, documentaries, art installations, and plays, including an off-Broadway musical.
0: What's the name of the musical, do you know?
1: Um, I believe it was The View From Upstairs
0: okay that that sounds familiar
1: yeah it was an off-broadway play uh or an off-broadway musical but i would i i hope there's a recording of it somewhere i would be really interested
0: i'm googling
1: okay 40 years after the fire in 2013 a permanent marker was added to the building which still stands with the names of the victims forever marking where they had once celebrated life and where it had all come to a tragic end. In 2016, there was a surge of interest in the upstairs lounge because the death toll had been eclipsed by the Pulse nightclub shooting, which brought up the tough memories of mass deaths in the LGBT community. As Pride Month draws to a close, it is important for us to celebrate not only for us, but for those who are no longer with us. Celebrate you, celebrate the progress we have made and always look forward and always look toward making a better future for everyone. And that is how I would like to end the story of the upstairs lounge fire.
0: Well, thank you for um, reiterating and readdressing that story. Because I remember when I was doing the Pulse nightclub story mm-hmm. um, a few weeks back, I they they mentioned the upstairs lounge, mm-hmm. and it, they said like Pulse was the most deadly attack on the LGBTQ plus community since the upstairs lounge fire, right. mm-hmm. and. I'm, I'm just really glad that you brought it up because it was something that was not addressed properly. It was swept under the rug. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a time when people didn't, maybe people cared, but they didn't want to show that they cared about our community. Right. So it definitely needs to be told and told again. So that would be, we know that it's been an ongoing thing.
1: Right. And it it kind of ended up looping together perfectly. I, when we were, when the gears were turning about cases that involved the LGBT community, um, this one was definitely in the back burner in my mind. And the fact that it has such uh, a close tie to the case that we kicked off the month with it just seemed like it all came together full circle um and i i can't recommend this book tinderbox enough i i i mean i just got a a quick glimpse of it there are so many deep emotional connections in this book Uh, i mean there is some just heart-wrenching tales to be had in there. So I really recommend picking up that book. If for anybody who wants to know more, uh, I mean, these were all people who knew each other and worshiped together and, um, you know, loved each other, you know, there, there's a particularly heartbreaking story, you know, in addition to all the other ones that I've shared of the, um, The bartender uh, and his partner was sitting at the bar that night, and that's where he died.
0: I know, and that's, that's, it's heartbreaking, but it also is very, like, comforting, knowing that they, they died together.
1: Uh, The bartender survived, though.
0: Oh, who's the man that went back in? Oh, the
1: um, the the assistant pastor. Yes. those were the the um the the two in the in the hallway who who died in 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 embrace. Um. Then this this case has really been in the back of my mind, especially since. uh, So I've I've been I've sung with the gay men's chorus here in the Twin Cities. Yes. And. We did a song, I believe now, gosh, was that two years ago now? Time flies. Um, and it was, uh, we did a song called The House of the Rising Sun that is a uh, reference to this tragedy. And one of the, um, one of the members of the chorus, my friend Matt, grew up in that area at that time and shared a really personal story of i believe he actually knew the son of one of the victims oh um and and just growing up as as gay in that time period where you couldn't really be out and uh, it was a really moving story to hear from somebody who had a personal connection to it. Um, And I'm I'm so glad I could discuss it, share the story, hopefully um, create more interest in it because it's one of those places, like if I go to New Orleans, I want to like leave some flowers or something, pay tribute to the victims there because-
0: um, For sure it really and,
1: is worth remembering
0: yeah and it's something that was swept under the rug and we need to like draw attention to yeah um really quick if you don't mind yeah i was googling um the names of the people who perished
1: oh yes it's a long list but yes. did you want to read read those yeah
0: yep so Willie Inez Warren, Eddie Hosea Warren, James Curtis Warren, Luther Boggs, Reverend William R. Larson, Dr. Perry Lane Waters Jr., Horace Getchell, Leon Richard Maples, George Stephen Matai, it's M-A-T-Y-I, James Ball Hambrick, Larry Stratton, Joe William Bailey, Clarence Joseph McCloskey Jr., Adam Rowland Fontnot, Ferris LeBlanc, Donald Walter Dunbar, Kenneth Paul Harrington, Gerald Hoyt Gordon, John Thomas Golding Sr. Douglas Maxwell Williams, Robert Lumpkin, David Stewart Gary, Guy D. Anderson, Duane George Mitchell, Louis Horace Brossard, Reginald Adams, Joseph Henry Adams, Herbert Dean Cooley. Glenn Richard Green, Larry Norman Frost. And then there are two unidentified white males.
1: I'm glad that they had added Larry Norman Frost there because I know he was the one that was just recently identified. Mm-hmm. Um, it and uh, That also just breaks my heart that all this time later that there are still two people who we don't even know Um, and that there's a family out there who's got a question mark there somewhere on their family tree of maybe it was a family member who was estranged you know maybe there was you know their family was not accepting and they they're like well fine I'm gonna go out and live my life in another city and the family could have been like well good riddance and never made amends i could there's so many possibilities right. uh and it's it's just so unfair for them
0: it is
1: um, um oh i did also want to acknowledge a couple extra sources outside of tinderbox um that i used uh there was a a great article from gay star news uh then there were as well as QueerStory.com and the New York Times. So those are uh, some supplementary articles that helped me uh, in a couple little factoid things. So,
0: right. Well, thank you for telling the story again.
1: And thank you all for listening.
0: It's something that we should all be aware of. And... Until next time, everybody. Bye.